Here's a summary of Be a Giant Killer in about 30 seconds. So Ed Norwood's book is about how family history and bad habits can affect everything you do in life. Those giants in your life, so often we will run away from them, but it's important to run towards them and that's what transforms your life. Ultimately, Jesus is our giant killer because he didn't come to make truce with the enemy. He came to defeat him and make us winners. And so throughout this book, Ed looks at different Bible verses and examples of that because there's seven different giants that can cause us to fear and shy away from God's plan. Just a few of them, one like the giant of dissatisfaction. You can defeat it by falling in love with the process or the giant of laziness. When you focus on growth, constant growth, like a cedar tree, you can take care of that. And you can battle the giant of forgiveness by knowing that it's never too late and God promises restoration. Well, I think you're really going to enjoy this uh, conversation with Ed Norwood, Be a Giant Killer, and his connection to something just absolutely tragic and how he was actually saved from it. So a little bit of a content warning on this if you're listening with kids. Uh, there is some mentions of Jonestown and what happened, if you remember from that story. So Ed, let's start here. What made you decide to share your story and, and write this book? Uh, Be a Giant Killer is really a book on how to pursue your wildest dreams and the giants that impede them. It's also a book on how our family history affects everything that we do in life. Uh, I'm a healthcare advocate and expert, and uh, I've learned that through our genetic makeup, we can pass the natural beauty of our looks, our hair color and type, um, unique facial features. Uh, my eyelashes uh, came from my mom, and when I was growing up, I hated them. When I got older, I loved them. Uh, so, uh, but, but a lot of different things, your athletic prowess, uh, your, your uh, metabolism can be passed to your children. Uh, when we had children, people on my wife's side of the family said, oh, he looks just like you. And people on my side of the family said, oh, he looks just like Ed. Uh, but it's, it's funny because our kids, they really inherit more than just our physical characteristics they inherit the residue of me. Uh, every giant, every habit that I've not dealt with, they have access to. And so I, I really wrote the book wanting to delve into how family history impacts not just our lives, but our children's lives. And I use the story of my family's loss in the Jonestown Diamond tragedy 43 years ago on November 18th this year mm. to cult leader Jim Jones. Oh man, I know that that was something just it's I think people forget about how tragic that was because it's been, you know, it's been a while now. Sure. Um and and just do you, you want to share real quick about how you were spared from that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, there's always a um people love to 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 talk about stories and Jonestown's a very tragic story. Um 918 people um perished, a third of them I'm not sure if you know this, Andrew, were children. And um, they were, many of them were forced to drink poison at gunpoint, um, but most of them were shot with bullets, crossbows, and needles with the poison uh, because they resisted. And there's some in the around, the, around page 206 in the book, we talk about some of the, the pathology reports that came out of Jonestown. Uh, but yeah, 27 relatives we lost. Um, there's a backstory to Jonestown that we get into in the actual book. But as a child, while my mom traveled, my grandma and great grandma took me to the people's temple. And, um, you know, Jim Jones stole dreamers uh, who wanted a better life. These were individuals who were facing uh, 
racism, disparities in their community, segregation, poverty, family dysfunction. And he really stole their hearts through deception. He told them that it was better to run away from their problems than face them. I was first exposed as a child to the People's Temple, and, and really I understood why so many people flocked to him, not just members, but political leaders as well. As a kid, when I went, there wasn't a time that I didn't see free food and free toys, and uh, I was in Toys R Us. I absolutely loved it. Uh, but he really filled unmet needs uh, in the African-American community at the time, and strategically really during a time of, of inequality. Uh, my mother really spoke against my family to avoid taking me to the temple. She was an evangelist. Uh, she preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. She was not a member of People's Temple. In fact, I was a member of a church that she belonged to as she traveled. But when she was gone, I was exposed to, to many things. Um, I remember one morning, uh, we went into the church or the organization, I call it. I don't even call it a church. Uh, but there was an eerie feeling in the air. You could sense something was wrong. Uh, my older cousins began to look at, at me and around to different family members, and they began to construct a boxing ring out of the pulpit. And I guess there was this five-year-old or four-year-old little boy who had broken a little girl's leg while playing on the playground. And his punishment was three rounds in this constructed boxing ring with an eight-year-old that pounded him into unconsciousness. Uh, while many people were horrified, there were several people that cheered every punch he laid on this young kid. And the message to every family's child that day, Andrew, was really this. What happened to this five-year-old boy will happen to you if you act out. You cannot hide. We will find you. And, and really, that's the message of bad family history. Uh, I talked to a friend of mine who um, just went through breast, uh, a breast cancer bout, and she was telling me how several members in our family died of the same thing around the same age that she is. And what family history will do is it will feel, make us feel as if we're doomed in a death sentence to suffer the same fate of those who preceded us. And so when you think of Jonestown, you have to think of the backstory. How did 918 people get to South America? Uh, my family, I'll be honest with you, um, I had seven cousins who were really close to me. My uncle came home one day. They were all gone. The house was ransacked. And my aunt had taken them with the help of temple members to Jonestown without his permission. And I was one of those children that should have been in that same predicament. Uh, my mom had prophetic dreams that Jim Jones was going to kill our family in the jungle years before it took place. She came off the road, hid me in a city called Daly City in San Francisco. And by virtue of doing that, it saved my life from the kidnapping attempt that took place with many of my other cousins. Hmm. Yeah, just powerful. And as you read the book, you'll just, your eyes just Whew, it's it's eye opening just to, to hear that inside, uh, uh, you know, perspective that you know we've heard so many stories, but to to hear you go through it, Ed. Thank you so much for sharing that. That must be tough for you. No, no, thank um, you, thank you. So let's get a little bit more into uh, the meat of the book now, uh, talking about being a giant killer. So uh, you talk about how it's kind of based on the Israelites 
And um, what they did after, and I love how you put this because I never thought about it this way. After they got the scouting, the scouting report, sort of, you know, of the promised land. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an amazing story in, in the sense of, you know, I, I identify giants. Who, who are these giants? Um, um, a, a giant is something that stands in the valley of indecision in my life. It's an indifference. It's a fear. It's a sound. It's a taunt. It's a challenge that's shouting at me to face it or remain the same. And so when you see the Israelites approach Jericho, remember they sent out spies and the spies who came back, they saw themselves as grasshoppers. And the word of God says that so did the giants in the land when they looked at them. And, um, and it's a profound story because uh, when you think about the individuals who went into the promised land to scout the, the land out, these were individuals who were simply going to get data to conquest the city. But when they arrived, the fear of the giants that are in that city keep them outside of their promised inheritance for 40 years, really 38 years. They're at the threshold of their greatest dream, their greatest promise, afraid of the inhabitants who are in the city, not being aware that the inhabitants in the city are afraid of them. And it's quite powerful uh, because oftentimes uh, we allow fear to keep us from entering into territory that's bigger than us. And we kind of delve into that in the actual, in the actual book. Um, I use both uh, personal and historic stories to let readers see themselves uh, in a mirror and how they can transform future generations. Um, I really hope and pray that we can inspire people uh, to be historic giant killers in their family, their generation, and in their industry. But I recognize that um, to do that, we have to understand how we got there. We have to understand the wounds and the healing process that comes with the things that we lose in life um, and not transmit our traumas and our fears to the next generation. Uh, the theme of the book you'll read in chapter 10, but throughout the chapters of the book, we deal with bad family history. Uh, and I discuss that. I talk about my bad family history in Jonestown, but also how uh, even doctors, when you go into a doctor's room, they'll ask you, hey, did your, did your mother, your father, anyone in your family have high blood pressure, that they have heart disease? Uh, why? Because they understand that those things pose a risk for us uh, to future illnesses. And too often, we also ignore family history. Um, we marginalize the effect of uh, not just illnesses, but past traumas and losses or regrets. And we'll say things like, well, I'm fine. Uh, well, that was then, this is now. If it didn't kill me, it made me stronger. Uh, and as we go through these attempts to marginalize what's happening in our life, we still hurt. We still get angry when we're triggered or we're reminded of these things. And um, I was in, my marriage was on the rocks year 10. And I remember going to a place called the National Institute of Marriage. And one of the therapists said something very powerful. He said, our hearts are like black boxes. When you think of a black box, it's this little indestructible unit in a plane uh, that has the fortitude to survive catastrophe. So even if the plane uh, falls out of the sky and plunges into the ocean and breaks into parts, 
the government will send divers to not just recover bodies, but this black box. Because they realize that this box remembers. It remembers the good. Welcome to XYZ Airlines. We'll have three hours to Utah. We'll have food service. We'll have movie service. Put your feet up and enjoy the flight. But it also remembers the bad. Mayday. Mayday. Fire in the cockpit. And that's our heart, Andrew. It remembers every celebration, every achievement, every unresolved pain, every hurt, every betrayal, every rejection. And the heart knows no time. Inside that black box is a little girl, a little boy, crying to be heard. And I wrote the book to allow that person a platform to speak, to encounter Jesus, who's our giant killer, who's our savior, who's our champion, who saves us from things that are stronger than us, that hate us, that defy and taunt us. And I've learned that people will shame us for our story. People would shame me for what happened in Jonestown. They would say, well, your family you know, went there and they drank the Kool-Aid. But there were some dysfunctional, dysfunctional families in the Bible, too. In Exodus 32, Aaron is the first priest. And out of pressure of the people, he makes a golden calf. And they begin to celebrate a golden calf and have an orgy while Moses is getting the Ten Commandments in the presence of God. And so I believe that Giant Killer has the ability to touch people in profound ways and to address things that hang in our family tree that we've viewed as harmless. You know, grandma's weekly reading of horoscopes or dad's anger, his foul mouth or his drinking or his porn addiction or mom's manipulation or multiple marriages, parents controlling or continually berating us. And we really wrote it to allow people to find freedom. And we use the story of the Israelites to show them how what happened in Israel and what happened in the promised land when they were approaching it is what happens to us every single day. Mm. So there's seven different um, giants that you talk about in the book. So how about we, let's unpack a few of them. Um, so let's go here with the, in your chapter talking about the giant of fear. You, I love this, that you say, God uses failure to redeem us powerfully. Yeah. Um, I think that when we show people our trophies, we try to impress them. But when we expose our failures, we can transform them. And really, it's out of the worst seasons of my life that God has demonstrated um, who he is to me and used me in a powerful way to impact the lives of others. Uh, the giant of fear is the Hittite. Um, the, when the Hittite is present, um, a sense of chaos or purposelessness or emptiness will invade our lives. It will try to bring intense distress to us. Uh, I told someone recently this, you and I have no right to live purposeless lives in the kingdom. Um, we have a responsibility to live a life of great intention 
to make sure we're doing things on purpose. Uh, but the Hittite or the giant of fear, it's a demon of extreme fear. It seeks to undermine us and make us second guess our dream uh, to relentlessly seek the death of what's inside of us, the potential that's inside of us. Um, you'll read in Genesis 26, uh, Rebecca, Jacob's mother, mother lamented, uh, if Jacob marries a daughter of a Hittite, what good will my life to me? She literally wanted to commit suicide because of the Hittite giant. Um, this giant preys on the vulnerability of your emotions and whispers speculation in your heart. What if you don't make it? What if your marriage fails? What if you die in this condition? And so we talk about how to challenge the giant of fear that keeps us living outside of our best life. So let's talk about the giant of dissatisfaction. And I, I thought this was a powerful thought that you shared in this one too, that you say often we want the promise, but not the process. <laughs> My hands up on that one, man. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, we, we love the end result and we don't often um, understand the process it takes to, to get there. You know, our office is very process driven and we tell people that it's important. My wife tells me all the time, we have to learn to fall in love with the process, not just the promise. Um, and it's important because the, the giant of dissatisfaction is the Gergeshite giant. And it's very literal. It makes us say things like, well, whatever happens, happens. Well, it is what it is, whatever the diagnosis is. Uh, and with the Gergeshite giant or the giant of dissatisfaction, we can be easily shaken by the things that we see or the things that are unknown. Um, when the diagnosis is terminal, when a pandemic hits, uh, when a career or business is shaken, when the marriage looks like it's on the rocks or headed for, for divorce, when it seems like we'll never get married, that we'll never be healed, we'll never recover, that our family will always be dysfunctional. Uh, and the, the Gergeshite giant is found in Matthew 8, 23, when Jesus encountered the man that was possessed. And the Bible says that he uh, came out of the tombs and he was so violent that no one could go through the area or pass by him. And, and when we have a Gergeshite giant or the giant of dissatisfaction, um, oftentimes we can't see beyond our five senses. Um, we, are, we dwell on the cards we've been given in life and, and, and we really despise the manner that we've been, been given. Uh, and we struggle to get past an injustice, an abuse, a betrayal, or something that happened to us in life and we've become violent with it. So that's the, the giant of dissatisfaction or the, the Gergeshite giant that we speak about in the book. Someone unwilling to let anyone near them to heal them or alter their perception to transform their life. I thought, I thought another uh, powerful giant, and you know, as you were just talking about uh, a, a minute ago, especially during the pandemic, I think a lot of us gave into the giant of laziness, <laughs> oh. <laughs> right? And I yeah, love that, just yeah. that idea of, uh, you know, the biblical idea of, you know, we need to strike the ground. How, how do we yes. do that? Yes. Um, you know, it's a great story uh, because there are things that are lackluster, that are inconsistent and lazy in our life, and um, we can become comfortable. This has been one of the toughest job markets we've ever seen as a self-employed group. Uh, Andrew, um, we've talked to people about working and many of them have literally told us, number one, the job market is extinct where we can't find people that actually want to come and work, which is discouraging. We just expanded to a larger 
facility, excuse me, and we can't fill it because people have become a, a bit complacent, maybe dealing with the giant of fear, afraid of coming back to work because of COVID, but also the giant of laziness, the parasite. Uh, we've had people tell us, uh, well, listen, I, I can accept the job, but I, I only want to accept it after my unemployment runs out. Uh, and so um, oftentimes when we are dealing with the giant of, of laziness, um, it's a, a person that has a spirit of entitlement and not necessarily empowerment. We live in a generation of entitlement where we've given our kids participation trophies uh, for coming in the last place. And uh, we've raised up, uh, not all millennials, but some have a, have a mindset that they're entitled to certain things instead of working for them. So we, we deal with the importance of striking the ground, not just once or not just twice, but consistently striking. Think about Moses in the, in the, in the, in the wilderness, or rather before the wilderness, when he had to approach Pharaoh. The Bible says that he had to uh, produce plagues, multiple plagues, to even grab the attention of Pharaoh. And God told Moses, I'm going to make you like God to Pharaoh, but I'm going to harden his heart so he will not let you go until the final plague. And every plague that Moses had to encounter Pharaoh with, it was an opportunity to demonstrate to God that he was consistent in the call of God upon his life, that he had to get up every single morning and produce the next plague. Even when discouragement set in, he had to continually strike the ground to see his people released from bondage. And I think for us, it's just like that as well. We have a responsibility to consistently demonstrate the call of God on our life. That means we show up every single day. We clock in knowing that the God who promised us is faithful and every good thing that he promised will come to pass and will not fall to the ground. And oftentimes it's difficult because discouragement and pandemics and circumstances, family history impede us from giving our absolute best in society. Let's do something that's uh, maybe a little deeper. Um, in your chapter about the giant of unforgiveness, you talk about your own stories, but how do people, um, and, and I mean, I can't, you know, just the, the forgiveness that you must have had to go through with your story. Wow. Uh, but how do people achieve that in their life? How do they forgive what maybe they think is the unforgivable? Uh, it's tough because I've struggled with this giant before, as you mentioned. Uh, thank you for bringing me to the altar, Andrew. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but this giant, the giant of unforgiveness is the Amorite. And uh, Amorites are fame seekers. They're seekers of human glory, of greatness. And sometimes in the past, I've sought the fame of my name or the fame of being right. Um, at the expense of unity. Um, you know, I've struggled, you know, if I didn't get my way or I was disrespected, I felt, or, or perhaps um, I felt inadequate by something that um, my wife said. Um, I've engaged in a silent war. I know that none of you have engaged in a silent war when you're upset, but, 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 but I've engaged in a silent war. And you know, you know when you're in a silent war when something's wrong because um, there is an atmosphere in every room and we can control atmosphere by the things that we do. You know, if you go to a romantic restaurant, 
Uh, the atmosphere is changed by dim lighting and candlelights, uh, maybe some music. Uh, if you want a different atmosphere that's loud, uh, uh, you might go to the Hard Rock Cafe, but we can control atmosphere. And some of you can walk into, you've walked into rooms and you can tell the person was upset with you without them ever saying anything. How? Because of the atmosphere, because of the silence that you encountered. And, and I would create this oftentimes, you know, engaging in a silent war or withdrawing my presence from my wife to try to punish her uh, if I was upset. And really what I was doing, Andrew, is I was trying to transfer all of the pain and all of the rejection, all of the feelings of being unloved to my wife. Everything I was feeling, I was trying to transfer it on her through my silence. Uh, after all, she did it, right? <laughs> and uh, like Adam in the garden, I shifted blame. But the giant of unforgiveness is quite profound because um, it puts us in a position where we gaslight or we shift blame for why we are the way we are. Because if it's someone else's fault, I don't have to change. And so we try to really delve in the book and help people understand that there's some things that you have not only done, but you have gone through, things that have been inflicted upon you that really feel unforgivable. But the Bible says in Ezekiel 11 and 19, God said, if you come to me, I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit to hear me, a heart not of stone, but a heart that's responsive to the touch of God. And really, it, it takes us the ability, Andrew, to not get mad, but get sad and have conversations real conversations with people about the things that have hurt us instead of marginalizing those things or ignoring them as if they never took place. Um, I've had a, in my own life, I've experienced trying to ignore family history or the things that I've struggled with in life. Um, there was a, um, a young lady who wrote to me on social media recently. She wrote, Ed, I desperately wish I could have really understood forgiveness before I became a mother. These are the guilts I struggle with to get over as a parent who did not know and was truly an enemy of God while raising two amazing children I didn't deserve. But I can never go back to correct it or undo it. And she ends it with a broken heart emoji. And Andrew, my heart broke for her, but at the same time, it leaped with joy because we're always making family history. We're always leaving something behind. And while we cannot erase family, bad family history, or the things that people have done to us, the resentment that's there, or the anger that's there, we can rewrite family history. We can determine not to repeat their anger, not to repeat their betrayal in our generation. That word history is the study of change over time. Change is something different than what's occurred in the past. It comes suddenly when two opposites push together. And so um, my father didn't raise me. I had a lot of unforgiveness seated in me. And um, I didn't know it at, at times. My wife would ask me, well, your dad wasn't around. That must've been really difficult. And I would say things like, well, no, I was fine because my mother was my father and my mother. I was just fine. And I would marginalize his absence. And I remember I was at a 
retreat one time and my pastor was praying for some of the men in the church, Pastor Neville McDonald, and he lays his hands on me and he kisses me on the cheek. And he says, I'm kissing you because you've never experienced the kiss of a father or the words of a father to tell you, I love you. And I want you to know, I love you. And I started crying uncontrollably. And it was in that moment that I realized that I can't make excuses for my father who wasn't around for me any longer. I can't say, well, my mother was both for me. I had to have a very difficult conversation with him. And it didn't go as as I wanted it to, but God warned me. He said, when you have this conversation, you might leave the conversation with things remaining exactly the same. You must be okay with that. But I remember the freedom I felt just having this conversation with him and saying, dad, why weren't you and mom, why didn't you and mom stay together? It really hurt me that you weren't there in the formative years of my life when I really needed a father. And um, I had to just get to a place where I learned the importance of repenting for family history when parents won't. It's always to get caught up in this, I do, when you look online and people are talking about your faith and say, okay, well, living your best life, it's important, finding your destiny, waiting on the best to come. Are those messages actually rooted in faith and in the Bible? And is that even what Jesus promises you and I? Is that the message of the gospel? Well, Dean and Sarah answers these questions and more in his book, Getting Over Yourself. And he's in the 30 Second Book Club next week.